Hello, and welcome to episode two of the Hopecast with Rachel Flick. Rachel is a speaker, Christian counselor, and an overcomer. As Rachel is walking through her own journey of grief, she's challenging others to persevere and overcome their own circumstances. We pray that you'll be encouraged by this all-new podcast. Here now is your host, Rachel Flick. Hi, and welcome to the Hopecast with Rachel Flick. I'm so excited to share with you today my second episode and part one of my interview with Scott Stone. Scott Stone is a deputy with the El Paso County Sheriff's Office, and he was shot the day that Micah was killed here in Colorado Springs. I'm so blessed and encouraged by Scott's story of his disability and what he experienced that day and how he has chosen to continue in a career in law enforcement and serving the community as a first responder. Scott has been married to his wife, Aliana, for six years, and they have two children, Carter and Nora. Here now is my interview with Scott Stone. Hey, Scott, thank you so much for being here on my podcast. I'm really excited to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So how long have you been in law enforcement? Ten years now. And has that all been in Colorado? Yeah, so I actually started down at Pueblo Reservoir Mm -hmm. as a park ranger. Okay. Yeah. So I got hired on, I was actually a reserve deputy with Teller County for a little bit. And so while I was doing that... I actually got hired on with Manitou Springs Police Department. And I was there for about two and a half years or so. And then uh, the lateral process with El Paso County Sheriff's Office came up in 13. And so I took that and I've been with them since. So about seven years now Mm -hmm. with the Sheriff's Office here. What made you want to be a police officer? I actually wanted to go into federal law enforcement when I first started out. So. I actually was joining the military, had some issues with that uh, due to some medical stuff. And then uh, I was actually going to get my top seat clearance and everything. And they were like, hey, you actually can't. We have to, like, bring you back out and everything. And I was like, well, that sucks. So uh, I thought my next best bet was civilian law enforcement. And so I started doing that and went from there because I wanted to do all the cool guy stuff. Right. So... What else do you like about law enforcement and what makes you a good fit for it? One of the big things that I really enjoyed doing was just helping people. I like being part of the like drug task force, the gang okay. task force, all that kind of stuff. That was a lot of fun. I did it because you really get to see how you can help communities because you know, you're doing surveillance on a drug dealer in a, in a neighborhood. Well, they're bringing in all sorts of uh, types of people. Um, people that bring crime into that neighborhood. And when you, I've literally arrested a drug dealer and done a search warrant on a drug dealer's house. And then as we're bringing them out of the house, people are cheering. So because they just, it's, it's like a relief to them. So stuff like that. I've seen that. I get to help kids. Kids are a big thing because kids are just affected by so much stuff. So what's the story that comes to your mind about a kid that you've helped at your job? So there's really two incidents that really come to mind when we talk about kids there was one when i was working in manitou we got dispatched to a motel and all the it was an anonymous caller all they said was the kids are just not doing well so i show up i go into this um i start talking with the parents and they're the parents were acting kind of uh goofy so 
I have the parents like step away and um uh, they told me that there was a kid or they didn't know if the kid was home or not and I'm like how do you not know if your kid's home or not so and how old was the kid did you have any idea yeah so uh the kid was four years old so okay and so I'm like how do you not know so I was like well I need to go in just make sure that the house is in living or good living condition and that kind of thing I go in and there's like dog feces all over the floor Mm. there the dishes in the sink literally had mold growing on them and like there was fruit flies everywhere it was just so nasty like I think I literally burned my uniform that night just Mm. because like it smelled so so terrible yeah and I remember finding the kid hiding in a closet where there was like there was feces and dog urine and all that kind of stuff and the kid was so dirty um I could barely like I could barely see his face like it was so crusted over and everything so I remember picking that kid up and like taking him out to my police car and calling EMS and everything and um the kid like you could tell like he had not ate much and like he just had like this blank look on his face the entire time so I mean I remember that that was pretty that was pretty powerful that is heartbreaking but it's also if we don't know that's happening you can't help Mm -hmm. you know you can't intervene if you're not aware of the need oh yeah for sure so this kiddo um I was actually over my shift I was on swing shift with EPSO and I was running late getting home so I was like already clocked out (laughs) <laughs> uh, as I'm going down Union, I'm going southbound, and all of a sudden I see this uh, Dodge Durango pe- going northbound, and it literally pops the curb and takes out a light pole. And I'm wow. going, woohoo, with the drunk driver. <laughs> like, I'm going to get a DUI maybe. And like, so I know DUIs aren't good, but I was like, yeah, you, 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 get, a little, you get a little excited about that. Excited when you're, when you know you can, like, someone that's that drunk, they take out a light pole. Dangerous. You're like, you feel a little bit better when they're off the road and that kind yeah. of thing. So yeah. I flipped around, went after him, that kind of thing. And like this, this guy took off. Like he had a Hemi Dodge. He was like up over 70 miles per hour. And we're going down Union. So, I mean, 70 is okay. pretty good. Um, we get, he starts cresting over one of the hills over by Memorial Park. And I terminate because I can't see him anymore. Well, there happened to be two CSPD officers um, going car to car up by the medical facility there the Durango had popped a curb another curb and rolled um seven times because he was going so fast and so uh we go up uh to the car because we can hear a kid crying and it turns out the uh, driver of the car was a 11 year old boy and he his sister was in the car with her with him wow and he was driving the car mm-hmm. so the what I thought was a drunk driver, it actually turned out to be an inexperienced 11 year old behind the wheel. So, but he thought it would be cool because he had actually played like uh, those racing games. And like when he got, he said later on when I got to a chance to actually talk to him, because he, he had to go to the hospital and yeah. everything. So did his sister. Mm-hmm. Um, were they okay? The sister wasn't breathing when I first came up. And it was really hard because like we were trying to tear apart this car, trying to get to her. Yeah. But, um, there was so much mangled metal and everything. And I remember, like, the one of the big things before EMS and uh, Firehead got in there is his name was Jacob. Jacob was actually um, putting his hand out the window asking me to hug him. And he oh, had blood just streaming boy. down his face. And I just, I held his hand and I told him, you're going to be okay. We're going to get you out of this yeah. and that kind of thing. So, and that was, that was pretty heartbreaking. 
but wow. he we finally got him free and his sister started breathing and everything and uh i got to see the family later on and uh jacob he was super intelligent for an 11 year old too which was awesome um but he, oh, he take got the car for a spin so he must have had some yeah, totally intelligent for yeah. that <laughs> common sense may not have been there but um but he was like i remember seeing your face uh that i'm just happy that somebody was there so yeah. like that was pretty cool that you were with him in that moment that was so hard mm-hmm. yeah that so, would be so scary it was crazy yeah so. i always hope that for my kids that if they ever get into a hard situation there's somebody there for them right that will be protective and and safe oh yeah i love that you could be in that space for him even though that was really hard you're listening to the Hopecast today with Rachel Flick, and joining me is my guest, Scott Stone. Um, okay, so what took you from patrol and being on the road to investigations at the sheriff's office? So I was actually part of a uniform team, which was an auxiliary unit, which was investigations um, for a couple of years. And so I kind of did investigations even though I was on the road. Um, okay. And I helped out with the auto theft task force at that time. So I got to do that quite a bit. We had the shooting, and then that kind of is what led me to do full-time investigations. So okay. after that. Okay, so let me back that up for people who are hearing this story for the first time. So mm-hmm. you and Micah were on the beat auto theft through law enforcement. Is that battle? Yeah, battle. So you guys were on battle on an undercover task force mm-hmm. where you um, did property crime and looked for stolen cars. Mm-hmm. And you guys were making a huge impact in the crime in law enforcement because um, would you agree that uh, stealing cars is a gateway crime oh, for yeah. for other types of crime and gang activity? Oh, yeah. Can you tell us just a tiny bit about that so people who aren't familiar can understand how car theft impacts greater crime in the area so car theft is kind of one of those crimes where when someone's usually stealing a car because they can either make money off of it or they can use it to commit other crimes and it gives them a sense of anonymity going into do other crimes or to like sell the car and that kind of thing so if they can sell it through a shady backdoor deal or something like that they can make quick cash and then that quick cash turns into either other crime or it turns into like drugs or something like that so often times when or like to fund the criminal enterprise like with gangs and stuff like that so a lot of times when guys are stealing cars or gals too uh they're doing it partly to get money for uh to fund their other criminal habits so oftentimes whenever you deal with an auto theft suspect you're dealing with drugs you're dealing with guns you're dealing with um even prostitution um other property crimes so it's all sorts of really interconnected yeah yeah so if you can kind of put a plug in one part of the pipe then the rest of it loses some of its momentum and funding from that yeah once you and everything that revolves around cash so i mean if if you take away the the source of the money you're really taking away a lot of that ability to commit the other crimes okay that's good to hear because i think a lot of people think that the investigation for auto theft was kind of like 
um, fluffy or like an extra or just kids doing joy rides and why would you put so much time and energy into that kind of investigation that led to the shooting that took lives and and all of that kind of stuff so right. I think that's really good to hear kind of the the backstory on why that's a good investment for the community mm-hmm. so sure. do you remember the first time you met Micah I do so it was actually when we were on patrol together he was actually on my shift, so I I got to uh, hang out with him a little bit and that kind of thing, especially during shift briefings. He always seemed to work the opposite side of the county from me, okay. so I didn't really get to talk to him too much. But the biggest impact that Micah made on me was we had gotten called to um, a riot, quote-unquote, okay. at Palmer Park and Powers I remember one night. that night. I didn't know you were there. I was. Okay. And so... I remember Micah because he had training in the jail dealing with like riots and like cell extractions and everything. Mm -hmm. There's, there was a lot of guys who had like the basic like four hour course and that's it. Well, Micah had more. So I remember dealing with all these things and Micah and a few other guys were like, we need to set up a line. And I'm like, I don't remember what a line is. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was terrifying. People were ready to take you guys down. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was crazy, and it was all that was all gang related too. So, of course, going back to that whole thing. So, but I remember Micah standing in front of us and checking us to make sure like we were in the right kind of line, we were properly spaced, we had stuff we needed, and that kind of thing. So it was really cool. So that was that's probably one of the earliest memories I have of him. So getting to hang hang out with him and like actually work with him. So systems and attention to detail that was micah 100 yes, percent, right making sure all of the ducks were lined up mm-hmm. absolutely so did you guys work together at the sheriff's office on battle or were you separate and coming together for operations so the way battle worked is we usually showed up to briefing in the morning and then we would um take a car uh, we would pick cars mm-hmm. so and usually you had three Anywhere from two to four people in a car. Okay. So it's kind of like a hodgepodge. Detectives in the car? Yeah. So like, and it's detectives from all sorts of agencies. I mean, all over the Southern Colorado region. Okay. So uh, it was just kind of a a shoot of who got into what car and that kind of thing. So, and depending on how many cars we had that day. So Micah and I had gotten the chance to ride together a few times. So. Were you riding together the day of the shooting? We were. It was Micah, myself, John Watts. Okay, so take me down that path. You guys were following Zatina for at least eight hours that day. Mm. What were some of the things that, that you remember from that day before? So we had found his car sitting in the parking lot of a motel. And then we basically like set up surveillance techniques and that kind of thing. Okay. Um, so when his car started moving, we then followed it and that kind of thing. Um, I remember he actually went to a car wash, like just a little away from his motel and was like, he was doing something in it. And we, I remember like everybody was like freaking out like, cause we, we had no idea what he was doing to the car in this car wash. And yeah. we, it turns out he was like spray painting it blue. Okay. So, and then he like took off, went down to security wide field, parked at a friend's house. They came out, they spray painted the car some more. I remember like he, he was like 
trying to duck and weave and like mm-hmm. figure out if someone was following him. So we like we followed him and he would park at random parking lots and everything. And I remember one of the parking lots he pulled into, we thought he was smoking like a cigarette or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, it turns out later on it was meth. But yeah. yeah. So we I remember following him everywhere and just like trying to figure out what he was doing half the time. But mm-hmm. yeah. did you have any inkling that this was going to be such an impactful day for you? No. Actually, I was planning on having dinner with another buddy of mine that afternoon. So, okay. like, I was I was kind of thinking about that. I'm like, tacos sound really good. Tacos. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, for the story and for the people who haven't heard it, would you walk us through what happened up until the shooting? Yeah. So, I'll kind of I'll kind of jump to um, when we decided to do the takedown. So... Zatina had pulled into the parking lot of the Murray Hill apartment complex. Mm -hmm. He had gotten out of his car and he had gone into a breezeway, essentially. So we made the determination while he was in the, or sitting in the breezeway, we would actually kind of do like, one of our guys would do a walk by to figure out which um, apartment he went into. Right. Zatina actually came out into the breezeway, or out of the breezeway. um, So we decided that we were going to do the takedown. So, um, so there was, I want to say there was like nine or 10 of us that day. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're all in plain clothes. We've got, uh, most of us, I think everyone had vests on or our under armor on. Um, so, um, but we wait and what we end up doing is then we grab a hold of the individual. Someone pulls out badges and placards and, you know, we inform him that we're the police and that kind of thing. But that way he doesn't have a chance to run the and snatch and grab yeah you're de-escalating the situation yeah right? we're so trying by to... not letting them in on what's about to happen you don't you get the element of surprise and therefore you don't get as much resistance right yeah so that's that's the big thing is we don't get as much resistance and usually when someone sits in front of them um they they usually calm down pretty quick okay so and that's unique to undercover investigations you wouldn't just walk up to a random person on the street and bear hug them and throw them in your car for instance just so people understand why this tactic is used yeah no as a uniformed officer that is very much frowned upon and i'm pretty (laughs) sure it's almost as a uniformed officer uh can be considered excessive so yeah yeah Yeah, Yeah. absolutely there's a little bit of different of tactics that you use when you're undercover compared to when you're in uniform. And that's actually put forth by the Supreme Court that that's, that's the case. So right. it's more intimidating and more of a level of control when a uniformed officer is talking to you compared to a plain clothes. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I know a lot of people have questioned the tactics and did he just think that he was getting jumped by a gang and some of the different aspects of that. So it's good to hear the backstory and give people more insight into what you all knew going in and some of the different expectations that you had. You're listening to the Hopecast with Rachel Flick, and I've been talking to Scott Stone today, and we've been talking about the day of the shooting where Micah was killed. Scott, um, what was the decision that was made that you and Micah would be the one to approach Zatina? Honestly, that I don't think that ever really was the decision. So everybody in plain clothes uh knows that you can because it's so rapidly evolving situation that any one of us could end up being the contact officer um what ended up happening is micah and i ended up walking down the street 
So like I was, I remember he was like kind of close to the sidewalk. I was walking like right next to the cars and I remember looking over and seeing a couple of the other detectives and the sergeant like kind of huddle or like crowded around some cars Mm -hmm. um, so they could, you know, come out if they needed to and do what they needed to. But then, um, because I think originally Trey, Trey White, another detective, he was actually getting ready. He was kind of like watching him and because he was the first one out. Okay. Um, and he was standing by a tree. I think he was planning on being the actual contact officer. Okay. But then Zatina started walking towards us. And so that's when like Micah and I realized like, okay, we're it. Like this is happening. So, um, and I was in front of Micah. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to be the guy. So, and that all happened like in your head, just because based on positioning and where mm-hmm. everybody was, and Zatina shifted position, so it was just like, yep. you were gonna be the one. Yeah, and at that point, I mean, you can't get on your radio and be like, he's walking this way now. Okay. So it's just not possible. So yeah. Uh, so yeah, like he started walking to me, and that's where it got down and dirty. Okay, that's quite the cliffhanger. Okay, well, thank you so much, Scott, for sharing that. And thank you, everybody, for being with us in this episode. And you'll have to stay tuned and join us again for the second part of this interview with Scott Stone. You've been listening to the Hopecast with Rachel Flick. To find out more, go to rachelflick.com. While there, you can discover more information about all the platforms that this podcast is on. Also, be sure to click on the social media icons at the top of the page and you will be directed to Rachel's social media sites. While you're online, you can book Rachel for your next speaking engagement. Her inspiring message will be sure to engage and touch the heart of your audience at your next conference, church event, or business function. Go to rachelflick.com to book her today. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next time for another edition of the Hopecast with Rachel Flake.